Hello, you are listening to Monsoon, a bi-weekly podcast that explores Southeast Asia through science and science journalism. One week, you may be listening to a scientist who studies the wildlife or climate, and two weeks after, you may be listening to a journalist who writes about the science. Either way, you are going to learn a lot about Southeast Asia. This is an episode of Storytelling Science. Hello and welcome to episode 3 of Monsoon. I am Lao Yahua, a freelance science journalist in Kuala Lumpur. In episode 1, we talk about what life is like as a freelance science journalist in Southeast Asia. If you have listened to that episode and you are now dying to know how to start, we are telling you that in this episode. And by we, I meant my friends, freelance science journalists Dina Rokmianinsi from North Sumatra, Indonesia and Sandy Ong from Singapore. Hello Dina, hello Sandy. Hi Yahua. Hi, Alhua. You guys are so popular, aren't you? I'm having you back on for this episode again and likely for the next few episodes too. Or maybe you just have very few friends. Ah, <laughs> uh, that is also <laughs> true. Very few science journalist friends. In fact, yeah, very few. I think I can count them all in one hand in Southeast Asia. But anyway, regardless, it's great to have you guys on. We're going to share our experience um, and what we have learned when we started as freelance science journalists. So... Dina have been doing this since 2013, 2012. I've been doing this since 2014. And Sandy has been doing this since 2016. Let's let's talk about our origin stories then. Sandy, you're the only one among us here who has actually gone to a journalism school, right? So tell us about that and how has that helped you in your career? And And do you think it's really essential? Uh, to go to a journalism school to do to be a freelance science journalist. Okay, well, first off, let me say that it's definitely not essential to you know have a degree in science journalism to do it. It's one of those things where you get into the field and and you kind of learn on the job as well. Um, but it is also useful in other ways. I think there's always pros and cons to every approach. Um, yeah, so I at that time. I was living and working in London as a medical writer and I wanted to make a sideways shift in my career because uh, I, I really like science. Uh, I have a background in science and I really like writing as well, but I was kind of bored with being a medical writer. So I wanted to see what else I could do with both my science and writing. And then I came across science journalism and I was also looking to move away from London at that time and I always wanted to live in the States. So I thought, okay, let's just be crazy and apply for grad school. And then I got in. Um, So I went to New York City and I went to NYU, so New York University's Science, Health and Environmental Reporting Program. So it's shut for short. And um, it's a pretty small program. They take about maybe nine to 13 people every year. And it was really good in the sense that it really helped me approach things in a systematic manner. And I guess when you're approaching or entering a new field, it can be really overwhelming and daunting in terms of, you know, where do I start? How do I do it? So grad school in that sense provided me with that structure and and how to approach things. And it also was super helpful in terms of networking opportunities. Our course instructor, he um, is a Pulitzer Prize winning science journalist himself. And the the network that he had was really good. So we always had lots of guest speakers come into class and they're like big journalists themselves. So like David Gorman, Ed Young, Elizabeth Colbert, Kristen, Christy Eshwanden. And they would come and talk to us about their experiences and their approach to writing. Uh, So that was super useful as well. And we got to speak to them and ask them questions. And also just like, 
meeting editors. They would have meet the editor sessions like every month. Um, so that was definitely very useful in terms of networking. And I understand that in usually in journalism schools, right? They will put you in like internships, kind of like they put you in a newsroom, oh, yes. <laughs> and then you get your bylines in those uh, magazines, right? Yeah, so sorry, I forgot to mention that. So, so that was super useful. So, as part of our program, we had to do two internships for about four months each, and um, I did one at Newsweek towards the end, and that was really useful in helping me. Like, that was my first byline and learning how a newsroom works. That was. Um, super useful and then after I became a freelancer I still did some work for them so that kind of helped me get started as well yeah yeah it's it's, it's really 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 helpful I think the the networking which is really key in all careers but definitely in a, as, as a freelance science journalist like the networking like whom you know you know even like me having met them face to face and then also getting those first few bylines right yeah, out there Otherwise, we don't have any portfolio to start. And so I think, yeah, you're right. Like journalism school is really great in, in, in this sense. There's also drawbacks though. Like obviously it costs a lot and it, it was really hard work. Obviously, I mean, anything worth doing is, is a lot of work. It was very intense, 16 months. But yeah, I think it's a cost that puts off a lot of people as well. Do you think you would have still gone on and maintained this career if you had, if you had not done the journalism school? Mm, in all honesty, probably not. <laughs> Mm, okay, so, well, then we are glad you did it then. <laughs> so, Dina, you didn't go to journalism school. Um, so, what was your background? Like, how did you start in science journalism in about 2013 or 2014? Well, um, first, I just jumped in, into science journalism by sending emails to SciDefNet editors. And, and they were interested. And so, I started writing without knowing any journalism uh, skills. Wait, but, so you, it was like really from scratch, scratch? Like, like yes. what and what year was that? Like, so you have not written a single piece before that? Yeah, 2011. I think before I delivered my first baby, I already wrote news stories. But then I joined Scoop Asia. Uh, it's a mentoring uh, program by the World Federation of Science Journalists. And it was very useful because I studied science journalism systematically. They made the models. I don't know if it's if it's still there in their websites, but they have the models in Bahasa Indonesia, in Vietnamese, in Arabic, Spanish, and many other languages. Uh, the great thing about uh, joining Scoop Asia is that I got connected to journalists in Indonesia and also in Southeast Asia. So it's it's right, Yoha. It's networks is very very useful if you want to be a freelance science journalist because in Indonesia, the Indonesian journalists will connect you to sources. When you are a freelance science journalist, then sources or scientists in Indonesia will think that, you know, who is this journalist? I don't know her. So it was very difficult for me to get uh, trust from sources. But once I got uh, connected to journalists in Compass, Tempo, and other media outlets, and then, yeah, it was easy for me to get the sources. So did you write for SciDev.net first or did you do the Scoop Asia first? I wrote for SciDevNet first, and then I got an email from the World Federation. I got an email from Yoon Kim, from the project manager. She wrote my stories in the Jakarta Post and then SciDevNet, and she invited me to join the program. Right. So, okay. So that's another very excellent opportunity, the mentorship, right? Coop. Um, I think the full name is like SJ Coop Scoop, right? So it's like Science Journalism Coop or something. 
I, I don't think they're offering it anymore, right? They offer it like it's not a regular program. I think the one you did was like the last one. <laughs> yes, it was the last one. Yeah, it all depends on the funders and the money. Other than the networking, like what, what, how did the mentorship help you? Like what skills did it build in you? Well, I think it's about um, understanding the dimension of science journalism itself, uh, whether it's not only about reporting the science or make everything simple. You know, you just don't convey the science just like a teacher explain it to their students. But science journalism is part of the society itself. When there is an event, you know, happening, and then we can always find a science angle on it. And I think that was really helpful for me. I was introduced to yourself how to report on science controversy in Scoop Asia. And, and I think, yeah, that's good. I, I kind of wonder, I mean, I'm wondering aloud now and you both can, you know, chip in. Like, other than such structured programs, right? Is it okay for science journalists now to just reach out to someone, say maybe Sandy or Dina, and ask for mentorship? Do you think that's acceptable? Yeah, I think so. You can reach out, but maybe because we have, uh, we already have our schedules. Uh, but then I don't know if we can have such a routine and structure curriculum on science journalism uh, mentoring program. But we would be happy to answer questions. All Don't right. you think, Andy? Yeah, I know. I agree. As in, I feel like mentorship uh, encompasses a lot of commitment and and time that that people may not always have. But I think in general, people are very happy if you email them and ask, "Hey, can we meet up over a cup of coffee? I would love to like get some advice from you and hear about your journey." I think people are more than willing to to help you, especially starting out, and just return that favor because all of us receive help when we were starting out as well. Yeah, in fact, that was exactly how I met Sandy. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> that was exactly how I actually reached out to Sandy, like knowing that we were both at the conference in Singapore, mm. and then yeah, so January okay. twenty seventeen, I think. <laughs> yeah, it was it was yeah. So it's definitely good to network and to reach out. Was there just so few of us? I I feel like there's so few of us. In fact, this is a good point to call. Like, if any freelance science journalists or just science journalists out there in Southeast Asia, you're listening in, reach out to any one of us here and uh, let's let's connect. Um, yeah, Sandy, well, I wanted to ask you yeah. about your your journey. How did right, you get my, started? My journey. So I I I I did not have mentorship really. Um, not in that sense and. So I started, I jumped into it, right? So I was a, I was a researcher, uh, a lecturer before. And then, you know, Sandy said she did like a, a side move, you know, from medical writer to science journalist. <laughs> I, I think I went like vertical change or something, right? So I decided to try science writing or science communication. And, but I, I had, I was going to, I was starting from scratch. So what I did was, sort of like an internship in a newsroom in a radio station here in Malaysia. And so I just signed up to be an intern and I worked there for several months in which I learned really like how a newsroom, a radio newsroom work um, and all the basics about, you know, interviewing, writing questions, you know, um, you know, thinking about story, that kind of stuff. So that was really, really helpful. Parallel to that, I also like Dina did, I just cold pitch is that the word i don't know like you know just send out cold emails pitches to editors that i found online and i just emailed them stories in fact the first one i did was like the exact wrong thing to do i sent the whole story 
I sent the whole story, like several hundred words. I sent the whole story to the editor. It was an editor, uh, it was Tracy Vance at The Scientist. I just sent her the whole story and I said, hey, you know, I wrote this story. Would you like it for The Scientist? And, what did she say? She took it. She took it. Oh. It was very fast response. She took it. I was like so happy. And because The Scientist is a very good magazine, right? And I, that, that was even before I quit it. You know, I was just trying it out. I was like, wow, this is easy. <laughs> then, it was a good start. It was an excellent start in that sense, but also a false positive. <laughs> it was misleading because it, 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 it made me think that everything was so easy in science journalism. And then I pitched two weeks after and then she took the second story too. I was like, wow, this is really easy. But then it was like, I think another eight months before I got my third story into The Scientist. <laughs> but yeah, so that was how I started. You know, I, 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 co- I, I sent out emails to editors, you know, out of the blue, just like Dina did. And then I also got myself into an internship experience in a newsroom. To me, that was really helpful. But what was the first year like for both of you here in Southeast Asia? For me, it was, I guess, pretty lonely and slightly anxiety-inducing. As in, you're still trying to figure out how to make it work, if you can make it work. For me, I told myself, okay, I'll give myself maybe a year, a year and a half to see if I can make enough money to see if I can get stories in places because you need time to build up your reputation and your portfolio. Um, you can't expect to like just, you know, be successful straight out of the gate. So it, it does take time. But yeah, it was it did feel like, oh, no one else is doing this. How do I do it? Um and at, at the back of your mind you're always thinking, oh, should I just like get a real job? Not maybe a real job, but a, a full time job that pays a regular salary. So there's a lot of doubt as well, I guess, at the same time. Your family or your close friends, uh, were they supportive? Yeah, they were super supportive. They were like, you know, try it. Why not? You don't have any major commitments. Um, Yeah, go for it. Why not? So you're lucky then in that sense. And I think also like for me, one of the big things that I wasn't sure about was like moving back to Southeast Asia after I finished grad school. Like I could have stayed in New York and um, part of me was like, maybe I should just because you know, it's supposedly where the heart of journalism is. Um, moving back to Asia, it's going to be a bit difficult just because it's not as established. But what I found was that editors in the West are, are very hungry for stories from Asia because like we've been talking about that, there aren't that many science journalists here and they're always keen to find stories from this part of the world. Yeah, so it's actually worked out quite well. Do you remember like how many stories you wrote or sold in your first year? Um an estimate? I would say between 10 to 20. Okay. Yeah, okay. not not a lot. Not a oh. lot. And definitely did not make very much money. <laughs> oh, building it, a first year building it. Um, Dina, what, what was your experience like in your first year? Well, just like uh, what I mentioned earlier, I just jumped in. I sent a pitch to side of net editors. And then when they gave me assignment, I just didn't know what to do. <laughs> I I didn't know what uh, journalism is. I have a science background, but I I didn't know how to write a news story. So it was it was a mess, but I I did it anyway. So I remember in my first interview, I interviewed a senior scientist at C4 Bogor. It's a forestry research center, and I think you know. I struggled to understand what he meant because I was writing about climate models. 
Uh, so my background was biology. It's about biodiversity, ecology, and I I learned very few about climate, and I struggled to understand that. But I tried my best. I, I wrote it and I sent it to the editor and the editor said, I didn't understand this. <laughs> oh, <laughs> so, no. <laughs> so, so he said, I, I gave it to my friend, a climate scientist, and he, he also didn't understand this. Uh, so he sent it back to me. So I, I gave it another try. I wrote it again and I asked my sister to read it. So I think that's the tips. Yeah. When we write science stories, I... I make my sister to read it and he said, so what you mean is blah, blah, blah. And we have conversation. Oh, so that's how we do it. And then I wrote the second draft and I gave it back to my editor and he liked it. And in fact, one or two weeks after that, I just got informed that my piece was republished by the Guardian and it was like, oh, okay. So learning is a process. Um, is that something you still do um, get other people to read your work um, other non-scientists or people with no scientific background do you still do that now yeah I think sometimes my sister is a geographer uh, a yeah, geographer a geographer and I think in the last few months I get back to her again to look at my stories and because now she's an established scientist I mean she's now doing research and her comments would be like uh, very detailed I really take her advice and and see if I can make my drafts better. I think Yaha does something similar as well. <laughs> yeah, well, my wife is my first reader almost mm. almost mm. all the time. My wife is my first reader, and if she likes it, then I know it's uh, at least the language mm. and the structure is there. And and I always ask her like, where do you struggle? Like, where does it slow you down? I found that really helpful. Mm-hmm. And um, so so Dina actually has a fantastic start also, despite the struggle in the in the start to to convince her, her editor or to make her editor understand the draft. You actually got <laughs> it published in Guardian, so that's that's quite awesome. Did you ever do you think you have like repeated that achievement after that? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I think at that time around 2013, there was a collaboration between SciDefNet and other outlets in the UK. So it was a syndication. It could be a syndication, but it does have to be of certain quality too. So Sandy, like, how did you get your first three stories out from Southeast Asia? Hmm, I think it was kind of a continuum from when I was doing my internship at Newsweek in New York. And then, um, so I don't remember exactly what my first few stories from Southeast Asia was, but I think it was also because I was just like very naively optimistic. I was like pitching big places like the the Atlantic Mm -hmm. and like new scientists not thinking like, oh my gosh, they're so top tier. I'll just pitch them. And now I, I think I would have been more scared now knowing like the standing of everything but I was just like yeah okay I'll just pitch them why not and then amazingly I didn't someone accepted it and then I was like oh crap like Dina like now I actually have to write it (laughs) what do I do (laughs) (laughs) yeah so that's basically how I did it just cold pitching like finding a story idea and then cold pitching it right so obviously all three of us you know started with uh, very thick skin yes uh that's like (laughs) 
almost yeah. like a, a prerequisite, right, for being a freelance science journalist, really. I mean, even staff writers have to pitch their editors. So you really have to, I don't know, perhaps even do it like Dina and Sandy said, like, you know, although you don't, even if you don't exactly know how to write your story yet, but you have like a, a gem of a, of a very good story idea, you just send it out first. Yeah, <laughs> and I think we're able to recognize like, okay, this is an interesting idea. It's a good idea. Um, there's something there. I think you do have that instinct. Well, then the next step after that good story idea comes, right, is it, it, kind of difficult, which is to pitch, right? Like where to pitch, whom to pitch, and actually how to pitch. I mean, I, I guess how to pitch is like a whole topic in itself, a whole discussion, and we'll leave that for later episodes. But let's talk about where we can pitch to from Southeast Asia, science journalists here in Southeast Asia. You know, who can we pitch to? We have mentioned some names uh, just now and also in the first episode. But let's talk about them in, in a bit more detail. I'll start first. So um, Sandy was right, I think, to say that many of the editors in the West like stories from Southeast Asia. There's a real market there, I think, and we are in a good position to fill that demand. And so for me personally, I have uh, pitched story ideas on coastal stories, like you know, with the seas or, or rivers to Hakai, that's based in Canada. I've written a lot for... Science news, that's based in the States. Science news just take all sorts of uh, different science stories, everything from physics to, well, which I've never not written on, uh, everything from physics to ecology to, well, anything I can think of. Yeah, they do it. And then there's also, of course, Discover Magazine and Popular Science. So I've written for both of these in my early years. And there's, of course, also The Scientist, which focuses more on biology and health sciences, but they do ecology and also policy quite a bit also and they're all open to stories from southeast asia it's really as long as it's a good story on science what about you sandy can you you know sort of like recommend some some places where we can pitch to I think it really depends on what topic you're covering what the beat is like whether it's environmental or tech or healthcare um because a lot of times the publications have a certain focus. So, for example, if you're doing environmental, like Yaohua mentioned, um, Hakai Magazine is great if you're writing about oceans or anything to do with water. Um, then there's the LE360, there's Encia. Um, and then, so so what I do is I have this like master spreadsheet of, of publications where I put like the publication, the beat or the genre, um, who the editor is, their email address, and any notes that you may have like, oh, whether they, how much they pay or how many words their front of book section, which is the, the, the section at the front of a print magazine, for example, takes. Is it 400 to 600? Is it under 1,000 words? So that's just for my reference for when I'm thinking, oh, where's a good place to pitch? And I just have a look and I, I break it down into like different tiers. So like the dream publications for me. Um, and then I also break it down according to like news stories versus features, um, break it down into genre like environmental or um, tech or future looking ones um, or long form. So that's kind of what I do. Uh, so this is Sandy Ong, the organized uh, journalist <laughs> speaking. Uh, but actually, I, I have the same template too, like dream mm -hmm. <laughs> dream outlets, you know, and then like shorter stories kind of. Um, Dina. Like, what are your recommendations? And uh, do you actually do something like Sandy does also? Um, well, not really. But I, I think 
I would recommend um, journalists to pitch uh, stories to sapiens if they have stories related to anthropology or archaeology, something that's related to humans. Or maybe if you have uh, something controversies, you can pitch to science and nature. But nature, I think they are more interested in science policy stories. Science and nature, they have... Um, good science journalists uh, as their staff writers so what they need actually from us uh, in developing countries is they want to know the politics inside uh, the scientific community so science policy about budget research budget story something like that it's something that they are more interested to take and then i would recommend to pitch to scidefnet the website publish uh, stories that are uh, short straight news and then you can start pitching to them. But they also publish features and longer stories as well. Solution-focused stories about the environment. So if you think that there are programs related to the climate change and it gives good solutions, then please pitch. BBC Feature is a good place to pitch. Those were all really good recommendations from both of you. There is actually out there like this major list of uh, where to pitch, right? Like some science outlets that we can pitch to. And that is maintained by a science journalist called uh, Robin Lloyd. You both know of that list, right? It's, I think it's like on a Google sheet or something. Yeah, I think that's a really, really helpful sheet. You can also find the link in the show notes. All right, now we, we can wrap up the episode by sharing um, <laughs> more of our wisdom on you know the, the strategy for freelance science journeys when they start out, you know. So we've talked that it's good to network, it's good to just be thick skin and just start pitching, right? But is, is there a strategy that they can adopt to get a good start? What do you have, Sandy? I would say it's something that one of our professors shared with us in his last class when I was in grad school. And he was like, nobody gives a damn about your self-doubt. Like, they just want you to keep coming up with good ideas. So don't be afraid to pitch something. Just pitch, no apologies. And don't think that you're bothering editors. Yes, they are very busy people and there are you know, certain strategies as to how to write a pitch letter, email, but it's an editor's job to find good story ideas. So don't be afraid to pitch. And also, you know, if you don't pitch, it's very hard to get stories out there, right? It's very rare that a story will just land in your lap and be assigned to you. Um, even now, like all of us still have to pitch. It's something that's just part of the job. And, and rejection is also part uh, of the job. So it, it's also learning how to take that, not in a personal way. Um, yeah, and to expect that. And, and another advice I would have is to network. Um, don't be afraid to ask for help or to ask people if they want to meet you for coffee and also read widely, read as many publications as you can, um, especially the ones that you really admire and that you want to write for and read many different sources as well, not just publications, newspapers, journal. Um, you never know where you might find an idea or, you know, while speaking to people. Dina, what about you? Well, I think I would say that uh, be diligent and do your homework to study the publications uh, what stories they publish so you can give them the pitches that they are looking for. 
Yeah, I have made that mistake by not studying their publication enough. And then I pitched right and this come the editor came back and said, yeah, we just wrote this story like two months ago. I was like, oh no. <laughs> I feel like we've all made that mistake. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, embarrassing, embarrassing. For me, my my you know strategy to recommend would be start small and then aim big, right? For for me myself, you know, I I started thinking like, oh, I'm gonna get like this big feature story out very fast, right? And that was all I was thinking about. I don't know how that went into my mind, you know, this kind of silly idea, but it was there. But in 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 fact, I didn't get my first feature story until like eight months after my first story. So it took some time and lots of uh, rejection along the way. And even then, that feature story was, was like not a, in, like a complete one. It was like a, more of like a list, listicle kind of a story. So I would say, you know, everyone tells me they want to do long form. But I think like to start, it's, it's best to start short, you know, like write news pieces, uh, front of book sections. You know, many of the magazines, like Sandy said, like, actually have front of book sections that can take anywhere from like even 50 words, 100 to 150 words, like Science Magazine has this, you know, and it can be very variable, like stories, short stories on policies, on career, even the opening of a new research center can be a short story for science, right? So... My first story for science was this uh, 100 words article. Yeah, mine too, about some small animal that nobody knows of. Anyway, but yeah, so study the publications, you know, start small, but aim big. Let's end with a recommendation for someone who's just starting uh, as a freelance science journalist or wants to start. I'll recommend that the person contact a scientist in your country or your region and introduce yourself and, and, and set up a chat just to know the scientist and to network. That, that's my recommendation for you to do. Dina, what would you recommend them do? I think I would recommend them to find a science journalist association um, so that they can uh, get connected to to know what's actually happening uh, in the field of science journalism. I think that will be very helpful. I would recommend um, something that Yaohua pointed out earlier as well, um, reading the Open Notebook and also the TAN database, T-O-N, for just examples of um, pitches that were successful um, to just learn the style and everything. Yeah, that, that was a very good database. I think they even have, I'm not sure, do they have database of rejected pitches too? I think it's another database. I don't think it's a ton. Well, anyway, those were all very good recommendations and strategies to follow. Thanks again, Dina and Sandy, for joining me. You have been listening to Monsoon, a bi-weekly podcast that explores Southeast Asia through science and science stories. This has been an episode of Storytelling Science. To get more episodes and detailed show notes, visit scienceilluminates.com slash monsoon. You can also find Monsoon Podcasts on Facebook and Twitter. Get in touch! Get in touch!